Well, good morning. If you have your Bible with you, turn with me to the Gospel according to Mark. You can use one of the Bibles in the back of the pew in front of you, if that helps. We're in the New Testament book of Mark, chapter 14, verses 53 to 65 this morning. This morning, if you're a guest with us, we are closing our, our time in the book of Mark here shortly. We've been working through this book verse by verse for quite a while now. And we are deep into the main event of the book of Mark as we near the cross with Jesus and we uh, listen to him uh, teach us what his kingdom is like and what it means to follow him. This morning, we will be with him as he stands on trial. As we watch our king this morning, we're going to read Mark 14, verses 53 to 65. This is the word of the Lord. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet, even about this testimony, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he, that is Jesus, remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, what further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him. And to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. When you go to courts, all eyes are on the defendant. The question at hand that everyone wants to know is whether this one who has been accused is innocent or guilty of the charges laid against them. How many of us would step into court and dare to question those questions about the judge? The judge is the one, when they enter the, build, enter the room, everyone stands up to show honor and respect for the office of the judge. Everyone calls the judge your honor. They don't dare just call the judge by their first name out of respect for who this person is. Imagine the horror if, in fact, the guilty one in the room was not the defendant, 
but the judge. Grant Osborne tells the story of just such an event in Pennsylvania, a judge had secretly taken $1 million from a person who was building a for-profit prison. And so the judge, to help his buddy out, continually found young teenagers guilty over and over again so that this new built-up prison would have people in it. It's the irony that we see here in this gospel, in this event of Jesus' life. When we come to the king on trial, it's not the defendant who stands guilty. It's the judges accusing the king himself. Friend, we all at times feel judged, don't we? Sometimes it's people around us who are condemning us. Sometimes it's our own conscience, our own heart whispering to us, nagging at us. Sometimes it is Satan, the accuser himself, coming at us, trying to condemn us for what we've done in the past. But brothers and sisters, just as the cross is for you and the empty tomb is for you, the king's trial is for you and me. Brothers and sisters, as we look at this event, I want you to know this gospel truth. I want you to take it home with you today. Jesus stood on trial so that you could stand before him. Jesus, the innocent one, the blameless one, the spotless lamb, stood in front of a condemning group of leaders and all the lies that they could muster up. So that one day when you stand before the Lord, Jesus could speak truth and say, this one is blameless. This one is with me. Jesus stood on trial so that you could stand before your God. Now this morning I want to look at this trial at three different levels. I want to look at this case against Jesus three different ways. And at the end, point you to the defendant, point you to the king who stands on trial. Now, at first, I want to look with you at the events of the trial. The events of the trial. There are four events during this case. The first event of the trial is the prosecution in verses 53 to 59. Let's read those verses one more time. They led Jesus to the high priest. And all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together, and Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. The prosecution is up first. And as they try to make their case, they are trying to make anything stick. They really don't know what to do. They are throwing anything at Christ and hoping something will land and give them a reason to condemn 
Jesus. But they can't get their story straight. Even as they try to cheat, they can't pull it off. And this is a big deal. It's a deal breaker in the court of law, in the court of Moses himself. In Deuteronomy chapter 19, 15, Moses tells the people of Israel, a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed, only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. So if they can't get two people to agree about what Christ has done, the case is already over and the defense does not even need to speak for himself. But this isn't the only rule that the Jewish leaders are breaking. The Jewish leaders were not allowed to hold a case at night. No trials were allowed to happen in the middle of the night. In the case of a death penalty, they needed two trials. And they needed to happen on two different days so that the people considering the case would have the time to pray about it and to consider with wisdom whether or not they really should go all the way and give the guilty party the death penalty. But not only that, neither one of those days, in the two cases, in terms of capital punishment, neither one of those days could be on a Sabbath or during a festival, which we find ourselves at in Mark 14. But even as they try to cheat their way to a guilty verdict against Jesus, they can't get their witnesses to line up. But the one story that Mark mentions is the temple. And in fact, this is only half true. To be clear, Jesus never says, I will destroy the temple. Go to John chapter 2, verse 18 and 19. John tells us, the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them. Now pay attention. It says, destroy this temple. That is second person. It's the command. He's saying, you destroy this temple. Not me. You, the Jews, destroy this temple, and in three days, I, first person, will raise it up. That's what Jesus said. From the beginning of Mark, leaders are looking for anything they can find to bring Jesus down. And when they finally get their chance, they got nothing. They're empty-handed. Real simple question, friend, that should not be missed. Why? It is, brothers and sisters, because Jesus is above reproach. Jesus is perfect. He is holy. He is innocent of any charge that could be laid on him. 1 John 3, verse 5, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. Now, that's important when we get to the second event of the case. After the prosecution, we find the defense in verses 60 to 62. Look at verse 60 to 62 one more time. The high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, 
Are you the Christ, the Son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Now, initially, with all these false charges, Jesus responds with silence. Now, just take a second there. When people are accusing you, and you know it is baloney, what do you want to do? You want to make it known that you are innocent, right? But Jesus stands silent because there's nothing to say to these people. They can't even agree with every lie that doesn't line up. The prosecution is doing the work for him. So there's a strategy here in his silence. But even in the silence, Jesus shows us who he is. It's speaking volumes. Isaiah 53, verse 7, the prophet said, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth mouth. This is who is on trial, the suffering servant that Isaiah talked about. But in Jewish law, a prisoner is required to speak, and Jesus always obeys the law. So when the high priest asks the essential question, the question that everyone has been asking in the book of Mark, Jesus responds, And he responds with a simplicity you don't find in any other gospel. This is the most clear affirmation of who Jesus is in any gospel we have. Jesus says, I am. This is the secret that Jesus has tried to keep quiet. You know, right? For some of you who have been in, in Mark with me for months, you know Jesus usually when this question comes, goes to silence and tells, them, tells people to be quiet. Don't tell anyone. In fact, when Peter gets it in chapter 8, the turning point of the entire book, this is what Jesus says in Mark 8, verse 38. Jesus strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Now, you'll remember the reason is because Jesus didn't want people to get the wrong idea. If the crowds who saw the healings knew that Jesus was the Messiah, they would rush and make him king, and he wouldn't be able to get to the cross. But now, in the moment when his answer guarantees death, he opens his mouth. Now, when no one's going to celebrate him, but only condemn him, and it, it forces him to go to the cross, then he'll let people know. And Jesus says, I am the Christ. I am the son of the blessed. And he tells us what that means. He tells the high priest what that means. He uses two Old Testament texts, Daniel chapter 7 and Psalm 110, when he says the son of man, the one seated at the right hand, the one coming with the clouds. Now, they knew what that meant, but I want to make sure you know what that means. This statement is what does Jesus in. It's this sentence that guarantees he will die. Let me show you why. The Son of Man was prophesied about in Daniel chapter 7. In verse 14, the Son of Man is given dominion and glory 
and a kingdom. The Son of Man is the one that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve. If you go to Psalm 110, the one who is at the right hand is the one who judges all nations. And Jesus is saying, everything Daniel saw, everything Psalm 110 was talking about, that's who you are charging right now. That's who's on trial. Jesus is saying, high priest, I ultimately do not stand before you. I stand before God. In fact, I sit next to God. I am the one who will judge for God. I am high priest, the son of God. And friends, what Jesus is saying to the high priest when it's going to kill him, I am God. Now, if you think I'm stretching what Jesus is saying, watch the next event and watch how they respond when we go to the judgment. Verse 63 and 64. Look at those verses. Verse 63, the high priest tore his garments and said, what further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. Now, if Jesus' statement was just that he was a good person or a good teacher that was used by God, none of that would have happened. It wouldn't have been that serious. Tearing your clothes in first century Israel was a sign of deep outrage and mourning. The high priest, when he tears his robes, is saying, I have heard enough. Case closed. No need to hear from any other witnesses. Everyone in the courtroom has heard the blasphemy. Meaning, this criminal, according to the high priest, has disrespected the name of God. Has just poured contempt on the Holy One. And so the high priest calls for a verdict, and they immediately say, guilty. We don't need a second day. We don't need a second trial. We've heard it. This man is guilty. And immediately, with no thought, with no prayer, they announce the sentence, death. This man must die. And to borrow a phrase from Mark, Immediately, we go to the next event, and we see the beginning of the punishment. Verse 65. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. I don't need to explain that any further. It's so straightforward. But the king is the one who takes the spit and takes the strikes and takes the mockery for you and me. And brothers and sisters, we've walked through what happened, the events, but I want to walk through what really happened. I don't want you just to see the events and leave this morning. I want you to see the irony behind the events. Consider all that has happened. As I say that word irony, as a child who grew up in the 80s and 90s, 
I immediately go to Alanis Morissette. Alanis Morissette once sang about irony when she said, it's like rain on your wedding day. I'm not going to sing it like Alanis. It's like a free ride when you've already paid. It's the good advice that you just didn't take. And she sings over and over again. Isn't it ironic? Don't you think? As you read this trial, you should be singing Alanis Morissette. Every bit of this is like rain on your wedding day. Let me point out six ironies very quickly. First, the false witnesses speak the truth. When the false witnesses lie about Jesus, they're actually right. Look at verse 58. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Now, in one sense, that's not true, but in another, it is. Because John tells us when Jesus says this in chapter 2, verse 21, Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body. Jesus was saying, when, when you destroy me, the real temple of God, Three days later, that temple is going to rise, not made by hands, but made by the power of God. And when Jesus actually dies, what happens is the temple veil is torn because that building is useless. There is a new temple. The need for sacrifices is no more. There is a new temple who will rise on the third day. The irony is even as the people can't get their story straight, they point the straight paths of the truth of the gospel, even as they condemn the Savior. The second irony is that Jesus admits who he is at the worst moment. When he finally lets it out publicly, it's when it will kill him. Jesus, brothers and sisters, never took advantage of the moment for his self-gain. Even when he was tempted to skip the cross in the desert, Jesus denied that temptation and went the long, hard road of the cross. Jesus shares the, the truth when it guarantees his cross will be accomplished for you. Another irony, when the high priest accuses Jesus of blasphemy, the high priest commits blasphemy. Jesus does not degrade God's name. He's the son of God. And as the high priest condemns this perfect, righteous son of God, he degrades the honor of the suffering servant. He pollutes the, the glory of the son of man. The one man in Israel, the high priest, the one man who's allowed into the holy of holies, who has better access to the glory of God than any other Jew in Israel, is the one who spits on the glory of Israel and condemns the glory of Israel. To his face, toe-to-toe, -to -toe, he rejects the one he was hoping for. Another irony. When they judge Jesus, they judge the judge. The one on trial is not the defendant. The one on trial is your honor. It is the one for whom we all stand up when he enters the room. It is the judge of the world, 
And as R.C. Sproul says, this is not the last time that Jesus and his accusers will meet at a trial. Except it won't be his. John 5, verse 22 to 23, for the Father judges no one, Jesus says, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. And even as these holy men of Israel try to protect what they think is the honor of the Father, they are in fact rejecting it when they condemn the one who will judge all things. Another irony is the soldiers, this one's my favorite, the soldiers fulfill prophecy when they mock Jesus and tell him to prophesy. When the punishment begins and they start spitting in his face and they tell him, tell us who did it, because they blindfolded him, they are fulfilling the Old Testament scriptures that they know better than anyone. Because Isaiah 50, verse 6, their prophet said, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. And in Mark 10, verse 33 to 34, Jesus told his disciples that it was coming. Jesus said, see, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. Even as they think they've got the last laugh and they've got this bomb in their, in their hands, they are just doing his own bidding, fulfilling the word of God. Last irony. And this is the one that we should hear, church family. The ones of us who've grown up in church or been a part of a church, this is the irony you should hear. The very ones who are supposedly God's people seek to kill God's son. The ones who claim to follow God are trying to murder God. The ones who've given their entire life to a religion based on the Old Testament Yahweh are trying to lay their hands on him. And Jesus told us this would happen. John 3, verse 19. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Do you get it? Do you get the message of all these ironies, which are not by accident? It's what Jesus has been sharing about the way of the cross in the book of Mark all along. The way to his kingdom, the way to life, the way of the Lord is upside down. It's what we would think is backwards. Brothers and sisters, the king is on trial so that the king could die, so that the criminals could live. 
the king is scorned by the ones he came to save, as we sing. Just remember the way of salvation that Jesus has preached. Mark 8, verse 35, whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. The irony of the gospel invitation. But friends, it's not just the entry point, it's the way of life. Forever, as a follower of the cross, you are a follower of irony. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12 to 13. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Do you ever get to a point where it just feels upside down? Do you ever get to a point where following God feels backwards? And that because you obeyed him, now it's harder for you? And because you followed, now you suffer? Peter's saying, don't think you're crazy. That's the point. Keep going. Live upside down and trust Christ. Walk by faith and not by sight. Friends, too many of us are trying to live today right side up. And we've gotten comfortable and we've gotten blessed. And we want everything convenient. And we want obeying God to make sense. And that's not the way of the cross. So if you feel ironic, you're in a good spot. Embrace the ironic. Now, the most ironic truth of all, and the greatest irony of all, again, I want to point you to, is the person on trial. You've seen him, but I just, I want to just marinate on this truth. The king is on trial. The one that people lie about. The one that is innocent but stands accused. The, the silent one who's being condemned, the royal one who is being dishonored, the, the heavenly one who's being rejected by the earthly rulers, the peaceful one who is being attacked by the violence. Who is he? He is the Christ. He is the son of the blessed. Jesus is the I am. He is the spotless lamb that was slain. He is the stone that was rejected for us. He is the new temple not made with hands. He is the new high priest who intercedes for you and me. He is the son of man seated at the right hand of God. He is the one coming with the clouds. He is the king of kings. He is the judge of the world. He is the savior for all who believe. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He truly is the son of God. As Revelation 5, 12, 13 tells us, they sing right now and forever, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. To him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And yet at every step, it's this one who received rejection. At every step, received condemnation 
if you belong to him, it's this one. Deserves worship and praise and glory with your every step. Friend, look to the one who stood on trial and praise his name. Stop focusing on things that don't matter. Stop giving your time and your effort and your energy to false idols. Lift up the one who was condemned so that you could stand before your God. But first, before that, do you even know him? Do you know the one who stood on trial for you? Do you know him as your Lord, as your King, as your Savior, as your friend? Or do you know him as an idea? Friends, let me share with you the truth of the gospel. Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have been justified, since we have been made right by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus. Through him, Jesus, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. How are you going to stand before your judge? The writer of Hebrews tells us that for every person it is appointed that we will live and die once and then stand in judgment. So how will you stand? Will you stand with your pockets full of your own good works and hoping that you've mustered up enough proof that you deserve heavenly glory? Or will you stand made right by Christ because you put your faith in his work on the cross, in his resurrection. Because only those who put their faith in Christ will stand and hope in the glory of God. Friend, God has brought you here to hear his word so that if you are not ready to stand before him as your judge, you can leave ready. Be made right by putting your faith not in yourself, but in Christ. But church family, by all means, remember your king on trial. Remember what he has done for you. Jesus, tell your conscience this, tell your heart this, tell your spirit this. Jesus was declared guilty so that you could stand holy. And that's not a momentary, minute-by-minute thing based on the way you perform. Jesus was declared guilty when he was innocent so that he could declare you innocent when you were guilty, period. Romans 8 verse 32 says, who then is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. You know what Paul's saying? Let people talk. You can even let your own heart talk. Let the devil talk. Jesus is the one who stood on trial. And right now, Jesus is at the right hand, telling his father, everyone who belongs to him is right and innocent. Church family, proclaim the glory of Christ, who took you out of darkness and brought you into light. Don't forget it, 
in the midst of the busyness of this world, in the midst of your mundane activities day to day, he is the Son of Man coming with the clouds of glory. He is returning for his people. So live in that irony, live in that upside down where it doesn't make sense to the world, but putting your faith in your king who's coming back for you. The king stood on trial so that you could stand before God. Let's pray.